Katie Lane, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Dr. Leeds. I'm really happy to be here with you. Thank you. So uh, uh, just to start off, can you tell us a little bit about the Thrive community and, and what the Thrive community is? Yeah, so the Thrive community is the community and program component of the organization I run called Thrive Alcohol Recovery. Um, it's a platform and online comprehensive program designed specifically for the Sinclair method. Um, I'm a success story of this method and so is my co-founder Karen and we've both been coaching people in this space for over four years now and really felt a need for an online private comprehensive program where anyone who wants to do the Sinclair method can come and get everything they need. So on there we offer you know video courses to guide people through the treatment. There's a community component live group supports, uh, content, um, exclusive content for our members, and just a really robust um, array of tools and support that people can have who are using naltrexone and TSM to overcome alcohol use disorder. Um, it's such an incredibly powerful treatment. I, I struggled myself for nearly 10 years with drinking, and this is the method that finally worked for me when I was honestly losing hope. So I have a real passion to help others through it as well. Okay. Did you try anything else like before you found the Sinclair method? Like, did you try AA and rehab or anything like that? I never went to rehab. Um, I did go to a couple AA meetings, but I knew that it was not for me. And I hear that from clients as well, where they're like, I just know that wasn't for me. Um, what I tried to do more so, and yes, I, I honestly tried to quit drinking probably dozens of times over the course of the nearly 10 years I was battling with it because I would often like maybe once a month try to quit drinking because I would binge and black out and do or say something I regretted or drive while drinking and almost got a DUI like all these ridiculous things that we can do when we're drinking too much so I'd constantly think okay this is it I'm, I'm gonna quit drinking so I would try different ways you know I would uh, go to spiritual retreats or I'd try different diets I would just try to do it on my own I would consume all kinds of inspiring content and quit lit and um, you know, just really anything I think more focused in the personal development realm to overcome this issue, but nothing ever stuck for me long term. I was able to quit one time for six months, but I knew in the back of my mind I would drink again because the craving was still there. Like I was just kind of um, white knuckling it, as people say, and resisting that. And I just felt like, okay, well, how long can I be sober this time? And so usually I'd make it a couple days, couple weeks, couple months. Um, and I would uh, relapse again, but it, it wasn't for, you know, because I didn't want to quit. I, I like really wanted to get this problem under control, but um, I just kept uh, going back to drinking because the, the desire was overwhelming. Okay. And then did you, I know a lot of people discover this in Claire Method by they start searching around for how can I quit drinking and things like that. And you come across this incredible YouTube video with famous actress, Claudia Christian, who's, you know, star of, uh, that what, what is that Babylon 5 I mean you know incredible actress um and, and she just you know and, and when you're watching it you know you might say there must be some scam here is she selling yeah. pills is she selling a program and she's not really selling anything other than just telling people what worked for her and then um I don't know how it went for you but I know a lot of people after that they're like oh great let me go tell my doctor and they go in the doctor the doctor looks in their little prescribing guy and, and the first thing they see is the word opioid you know, now tracks on opioid blocker, opioid receptor antagonist. And they're like, oh, no, never mind. You know, forget that. I'm not going to prescribe you something with the word opioid in the description. Um, or they might say like, oh, yeah, now tracks on. You take it every day. And you, don't, you don't drink. And um, neither of those things is helpful with 
TSM. And, you know, when you tell them, well, I just heard about this incredible Sinclair method where I keep drinking and take the pill that you're going to prescribe me. And, you know, doctors are like, no, there's nothing where you keep drinking, you know, forget that. So how, how did that work for you? Yep, you described that to a T. I can tell you've been in this field a while. Um, so same for me. I I watched the TED Talk that, you know, now I think I was just looking yesterday, like over 4 million people have seen it. Like, I'm so grateful to Claudia, because if it wasn't for that TED Talk, I don't know where I'd be today. And that's a scary thing to think about. But yeah, I, I would often after a binge, I would go to the internet looking for people's stories of how they overcame alcohol addiction, because honestly, it was inspiring for me to hear testimonies of how people did it, you know, how they how long they've been sober and things like that. So I would constantly scour YouTube and the internet for that. And one day it led me to Claudia's TEDx talk. And I had that thought, okay, this is an actress, just, you know, another gimmick. But, you know, at the end of it, I was like very convicted and I was like, well, I have to try this. Like I've tried everything else. If there's a pill, you know, like a lot of people come to me now and say, well, if this is so effective, why haven't I heard about it before? And I hear that probably daily. Um, but so I, I was really motivated to try it out. I probably watched the TED Talk like three or four times back to back because I was just like, what? This seems way too good to be true. Um, and what I did, I had just moved to a new area, so I didn't have a GP yet I was working with. So I was just calling a bunch of doctors who were in my network asking if they would prescribe it. And I think I called five or six places and they all said, no, you need to go to rehab. Maybe we'll prescribe it after you do a rehab program or a detox program. And so I just kept getting the door slammed in my face. And this was 2017. So there were online doctors then, but not nearly as many um, as there are now. And I wasn't aware of the C3 Foundation at the time either. I was just kind of doing my own research, which for people who aren't aware, they have physicians who prescribe the medication listed on their site. So it took me a couple of months of kind of like pounding the pavement. And I finally did find a doctor um, an online doctor who was licensed in my state, California, who prescribed it um, a couple months after I learned about the method. And thankfully, she was a Sinclair method doctor. So she prescribed it to me the correct way to take it following this protocol. But it, it did take me a couple of months. And it was a really shameful experience just to feel like the door was being slammed in my face. And they were telling me I needed to go to rehab and detox and things like that. When yeah, I was drinking a lot, but I was functioning still. And honestly, that was the first time I had verbalized to a doctor or a medical professional that I needed help. And it just became this ex extremely shameful experience where I wasn't really being met with compassion or kindness. It was like, no, you need to go to rehab. And so that was a difficult start to the method. But thankfully, I did find the medication within a couple of months. Yeah. Yeah. Going to a doctor isn't a, a pleasant experience. You know, going to the waiting room and the paperwork and um you know, and waiting in the little room. And, and I mean, all that just to have, have them tell you, no, I mean, it, it's not uh, very pleasant, but hopefully, hopefully someday, I, and you know, I, I don't know how hopeful I am at this point, you know, hopefully now Trexon will become an over-the-counter medication. So, you know, because I think, I think it's a safe enough medication that doctors can be mostly taken out of the equation that, you know, a person can have the option to work with a doctor or not work with a doctor. Um, you know, if you want to take, Advil or, or something like that for a headache, you don't have to go to a neurologist to ask for permission. Um, but you have the option to do that if you think that, you know, it's an unusual headache or, or whatever. But um, yeah, and, and I, I know that they have, there was a plan for that, that um, Claudia had talked about that, that, that naloxone, the, the thing for reversing opioid overdoses, that, that was supposed to be fast-tracked by the FDA. And, and they were talking about it before COVID, they were gonna fast-track naloxone for, um, for being over-the-counter. 
it, it kind of is sort of over the counter, like where you can go to the pharmacist without seeing a doctor and fill out paperwork and get naloxone. Now, Trexone is, is somewhat related. They're both opioid blockers. They're a little bit different, but they're, they're similar in a lot of ways. And she said they were going to try to piggyback on that of lobbying whoever in government to, to get naltrexone put through the same process. But here we are years later, and that fast track for naloxone doesn't seem to be going anywhere. Um, it's just crazy because there's no reason. I don't think, I think naltrexone is such a safe thing that, you know, people shouldn't have to worry about where am I going to get it from. Yeah, and that's an awful fear to have when you learn about this method and you maybe start on it, you see some progress, and then you don't have a consistent prescription. I've been meeting and talking with a lot of people who are in different countries like Australia and Canada, and it's not nearly as easy to get over there as it is now becoming in the U.S. with telemedicine doctors like yourself and others. Um, so it's still you know, a difficult thing to get. Like in Australia, you have to have a goal to quit drinking. Like you don't, you, you can't have oh. moderation as a goal. So there's hoops like that people have to jump through. But yeah, it, it would be nice to be, have it over the counter. That would be great. Yeah. So, so the, the Sinclair method, I mean, we can like sum it up in like one or two sentences. He, he, and, and so it seems so easy. So people probably think, oh, I have a bottle of pills. I don't, I don't, need, a, I don't need a coach or a guide or, or any guide, anything. All I need to know is, take a pill an hour before I have a drink and, and that's pretty much it. And, and then drink less and less, you know, watch it go down over time uh, to pharmacological extinction and, and then I'm done. But there's a lot, as you know, there's a lot of nuances and, you know, it's, it's not that simple. Everybody's different. And um, so when people, I think when people get involved in this, the place they end up going is probably like Facebook or Reddit, you know, where there's all these people talking and chatting and, and, and there's just, they're all over the place. Um, so it sounds like what what you're doing is is you have you've built a community you you have a a program um how how does that differ what are the advantages over just like the the open internet and and facebook groups you know where everybody's just saying whatever they want to say yeah and I was honestly one of those people where I was like, I don't need any help. I've got this medication. I'm good to go and I was pretty humbled a few months into the Sinclair method when uh I was drinking less I was seeing progress, but with that emotions were coming up that I'd been numbing out every day for years and years and habits were playing out that like I naltrexone was causing me to not want to drink less or it was causing me to like lose my urge to drink but then here I was like drinking anyway I was like what's going on here like I'm fighting the medication so anyway I, I just want to say like that's exactly what happened to me and I think a lot of people do even though like most of us will say we're aware that a pill is not going to fix you know a complex drinking problem I think sometimes we go into it with that mindset but yeah, you know, the difference with our program and community that we offer is that it's really it's run by expert coaches and almost all of our coaches have personal experience with the method um, and have gone through the coaching certification program with the C3 Foundation. And uh, one of our coaches has an extensive background in the traditional kind of recovery space. And he was um, anti-TSM when he first learned about it because he'd been so in, indoctrinated. I don't know if that's the right term, but just so ingrained and enmeshed in the traditional abstinence only based treatment world but once he saw the success rates and has seen that with his clients he became a, a proponent of tsm but um we're really uh intentional with the resources and information we share we've been lucky that we've been mentored by a number of sinclair method doctors over the years as, as coaches and with our personal experience with it as well we really um are careful with the information we share and we're, we're sure that it's uh, vetted and so when people ask questions like 
you know, about redosing on the medication or, um, you know, side effects of the medication or, you know, issues with, you know, drinking through the medication and all these kind of common challenges that come up. Um, they're not just getting a, like 30 different opinions from a bunch of different people. They're getting, you know, opinions from coaches and then also our program members can chime in as well, but we're always watching the, the information that's being shared. Um, and we've also been really intentional with the course material and the resources that we share as well, um, just so that it's accurate advice. Um, one thing I've heard from um, our members who are both um, inside our program, but also in like the Facebook groups, for example, is um, they are uh, they can get discouraged with the advice that they get or, or it can be very uh, confusing or conflicting because people will have different sets of opinions or advice and so i always tell people if you're in those groups that's great it can be an awesome source of support but take the advice you get with a grain of salt because you know you're really hearing from people all over the board who you know maybe don't have a ton of experience in it but they're they're sharing their opinion um and it can also be I've heard people say it can kind of bring them down a bit as well because you kind of get everything in those groups where people who are, you know, not having a good time on the method, they'll kind of go on a rant about it or, you know, just different different challenges people are having. And that, that certainly happens in our community as well. People are free to share whatever they'd like. But um, we're just very, I guess you could say, intentional with the resources and information we share so people aren't being misguided or giving conflicting information. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I know that long-term support is really important because that's one of the, um, you know, there's a few points where people seem to fail with TSM, at least early on. Um, I mean, one is medication side effects and, and how do they deal with that? Um, and another would be that they think it just isn't working for them. And, and, and maybe there is like a small percentage of people it doesn't work for, or maybe it work, doesn't work as well. But um, I, I'd say the biggest group of people that, that don't have success long-term are people that they take it and it works great. And they're like, wow, that was miraculous. I, I really didn't want to drink as much. I really was able to stop at one drink. And um, and then, you know, maybe a week later, you hear back from them, it's still working great. And and then they just kind of disappear. And, yeah. and I don't know what they're thinking. Maybe they're thinking like, well, it worked great. So let me just go have my fun drinking and I'll try again another time. Um, or they, you know, they put it like in the back burner, like, okay, I have something that works for when I'm ready to do it. Um, I'm, you know, I'm not really sure what the thinking is, but, um, the people that agree to stick with long-term support do really, really well, you know, just, uh, and, and I'm sure you're saying that also people that commit long-term to, to stay in your group and have ongoing coaching uh, do the best rather than someone who gets the bottle of pills and like, here's enough pills that might last you a year. Let's see how you do. And they don't do very well with it. Yeah. Yeah, and honestly, that's one of the reasons we offer lifetime access in our program, because what I've seen as a coach, and I've seen it in our program as well, is people might be really excited about this method and medication, and kind of like you said, they'll start it, they'll see some changes, but maybe they're not ready to be completely compliant, or, you know, they're just not ready to really commit to this protocol because it it does change the drinking experience so if someone is going through a divorce and they still want to you know use alcohol as that coping tool there's potentially you know risk that they're going to you know drink through the medicine or they're going to hit a plateau with it so we offer lifetime access to our program and resources and that includes like unlimited access to coaches and community and all of the resources for that reason um, for most people we find this method does take about a year to reach their goals and we often tell people that to have that right frame of mind because you know also i get emails a lot from people where they're like i've been on it for two weeks and i'm still drinking too much like how come it's not working and so having that expectation that this is a long-term treatment protocol can really help people 
especially in the beginning, just so they're not disappointed if they're a couple months in and they're not where they want to be yet. So um, we've seen people in our program also who've been on the method for year and a half, two years, and they've seen, you know, a 60, 70 percent reduction in their drinking, but they're still not quite where they want to be. And oftentimes I think it's the habitual piece um, that's playing out for people um, using alcohol as a coping tool because it's such an easy, quick, accessible thing that, like I said, with my own experience, you know, I, I didn't really have the strong desire to drink, but I was drinking, you know, most nights anyway, just because it's what I did. It was my ritual. And so we help our members really with the behavioral side of it, you know, to help them get to a place where they feel empowered over alcohol. Um, I wanted to ask you something, Dr. Leeds, because you said something that uh, piqued my curiosity where you said, you know, maybe it doesn't work for some people. And we had a, a mindful drinking workshop last night in our in our program. And um, one of the people there had been on the method for a year and a half, one of those people that saw awesome progress, but still not where they want to be. And they were asking, you know, okay, what about the people that respond in six months and they feel cured at the end? You know, are people responding to it differently based on their genetics, based on how they learned alcohol? use disorder. And I'm curious what you've seen in your practice or if you have an opinion on that. Like, do some people respond better or more quickly to the medication or what have you seen? Uh, my my experience, and it, it may not be enough to, to call it a, a study or it's not a study, you know, just <laughs> an anecdotal experience. But um, I, I have not seen anyone who, who who didn't respond at all to the medication. I, I heard someone say, and I, and I haven't seen the, the data to back this up, but someone had told me that there might be 10% of the population just genetically doesn't respond to the medication. Yeah. Um, I, I haven't seen that yet, but what I have seen are the, the other things that I mentioned. Um, I've seen people that had trouble sticking with it because of side effects, um, you know, whether it's, you know, sedation, nausea. Um, one patient complained of, of significant erectile dysfunction and, and that it, it was something that, that was, he could take additional medication to counteract it but he didn't really want to. He was like, well, why, why should I have to take another thing to deal with the side effect of that? I'm like, well, you know, I don't know because it worked, you know, um, but uh, you know, so there's all kinds of different things, you know, but uh, there's this one guy that he said it worked really well, but it just made him really sick and nauseous and sleepy. And, and he felt, he felt like if he kept taking it, he might be able to overcome that the side effect, but he didn't want to be committed to taking it regularly just yeah. as needed. And um but yeah, as far as like a person who it just doesn't do anything for, uh, I haven't seen that. Um, long as far as you know, someone that it might work better for over a long period of time, that that I'm not sure about. Um, that might be possible. You know, people that have their graph of alcohol consumption going down faster than others. Uh, but yeah, it's pr pretty much everybody I've worked with, uh, they they're really like shocked at how well it works initially. Mm -hmm. You know, that that like. The, the compulsion, which is like the physical urge to keep going once they have that first drink, that is greatly diminished or, or completely gone where they're able to stop with the one drink. Oh, that's really encouraging to hear. That's kind of confirming to what I was assuming, but hearing from your personal practice, that's interesting. Thank you for sharing. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, but, but yeah, I think the trick is to, you know, I think what, what you're doing is great because I think people really do need long-term support. I, I have a patient that I didn't expect to work with him beyond a month and, and we worked together. I explained how, how things work and he, he tried the medication. It worked great. And at the end of the month, uh, you know, and, and his employer was the one who was paying for his treatment. And so we, we met at the end of the month and I said, well, I think he's on track. He knows what to do. And the employer said, well, no, he, he tends to 
to backslide and go back to old habits, you know, if left alone. So I said, I want to keep you on as an ongoing uh, reminder. I want the two of you to, to meet every month and, and talk and, 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 and he's one of my su- most successful patients. I mean, he's doing incredibly well. And, you know, you, we have a few conversations every month. It's not, not much. And we talk about all kinds of things. And, and I think just having that reminder of, of yeah. being in contact with people with community uh, makes a huge difference, you know, because it's easy to, to say, yeah, this works great. I can put it aside and get back to it later on and put it off. Oh my gosh, I couldn't agree more. And that was also something that came up on our group call last night is like, this is such an isolating issue, even though we know people struggle with alcohol all over the world, when we're in in the thick of it ourselves, it feels very isolating. And so we can kind of continue that pattern, even on naltrexone, where people are like, I just want to do this by myself and on my own. But I think plugging into support and being able to talk to others who get it, you know, people who are also going through it, you know, even if your family members are supportive, they may not understand what it's like to experience alcohol use disorder, which is a good thing. Um, But, you know, it's hard to kind of, you know, explain this process to them or have them really understand unless they've experienced it themselves. So I really do think um, that can help someone be successful, just like you've seen with your client. I've seen that with people as well. If they're engaged, if they're reminded to take the medication, if they're you know, held accountable, not in a way to like condemn them if they make a mistake, but just to like check in and see how they're doing. And okay, if you didn't take the medication last night, why? What's what's going on? Let's talk about that. Um, and I think that's something that perhaps people are a little bit of afraid of as well, because their traditional treatment world, it's very black and white. You're either in recovery and succeeding or you've relapsed and you have to go back to day one. And so that's been very, I think, traumatizing for a lot of people to where they just automatically feel like a failure if they make a mistake on the Sinclair method, because that's what has been done historically. But one of one of our clients this week said, I like the Sinclair method because I don't need to be perfect with it. And I think that just puts it so um, and such a good uh, way to describe it, because that's true with anything in life as humans. If we're trying to lose weight, we're probably going to have days where we skip our workouts or where we eat too much candy or something. But it's about the long term you know, protocol and, and the success of it long term and those sustainable changes, not like that quick fix. If I'm going to quit drinking and never drink again. And for a lot of us, that leads to a relapse over and over again, at least in my case and what I've seen with others as well. Yeah, yeah, that, that's one of the best parts about I mean well besides the fact that the Sinclair method works the fact that you can tell someone um this isn't the end of your drinking you know no one's saying that you can't ever have a drink again um and and that I think I agree that with uh 12-step recovery that's one of the most damaging parts of it that you know for someone who's had really great long-term success and and they have one slip up they have even a sip of beer uh and everyone in the meeting will say like well you're starting over again at zero even if you have 12 years 15 years 20 years sober you're now at zero and and i I know if if that happened to me i would say like well since i'm starting over again let me just go have some really have some fun now exactly Um, so it's very damaging to tell someone that that you've that that one drink you're you're starting over again from day zero yeah and i've heard clients say well if i'm an alcoholic then i guess that means i just drink all the time like it's kind of a self-serving thing to where the label can be can cause people to stay stuck in it longer than than needed. So, yeah, I, I there's so many great things about the Sinclair method. That's why I'm so passionate about it. Um, do you mind if I ask how did you get involved in the Sinclair method? What turned you on to it? Uh, it it was a um, person came in the office who saw Claudia's video and, and told me oh. about it. And um, you know, my first reaction was, well, I was I knowing about I, I knew about naltrexone. You know, because we had already been using the um, 
the injection for people for opioid addiction, the uh, whatever they call it, that we, we don't give that anymore, but uh, Vivitrol. Yeah. And, um, and and I was I was familiar with the tablets because they were, you know, it's a lower cost equivalent for someone who can't afford or get approval for Vivitrol. I could at least prescribe them the tablets. And so I had no problem writing the prescription. I knew it was safe. I knew it was effective and I knew how to, you know, what warnings to give them. But I, I definitely was not comfortable telling someone that you can, you can drink and, you know, keep drinking. You know, I said, well, in fact, I was prescri- in the very beginning, I was prescribing um, antabuse with it, disulfiram. And, um, and, you know, and I would say, well, don't drink, take naltrexone and, and take the other one too, the disulfiram together, take them both together. And then you really won't want to drink. And, um, and then I found a compound pharmacist that he said, he thought it was a great combination and he had his own mix where he would put them both into like one capsule, the uh, disulfiram, which is antabuse and, and naltrexone. But he said, well, I, I use a much lower strength of, of the uh, disulfiram, you know, just so the person, if they do drink, they don't get the terrible reaction they would get with a full strength one. And, and then, then I started reading, you know, another patient came in, the second one who told me about it. And she said, you really have to drink with it. It doesn't work if you don't drink. I'm like, okay, well, now I really have to go learn about it. I can't just, you know, give the prescription and say, you do whatever you want to do with it. Um, so, you know, I really kind of immersed myself in it, read about it. And, um, and I still was uncomfortable in the beginning. I'm like, well, you know, here's a prescription. It says take once a day, but, you know, do what you're going to do with it. Hopefully you're not going to drink. Yeah. And, and then, so then I started thinking about it more in terms of harm reduction that don't drink, but if you're going to have a drink, at least take the pill an hour before, like they say, and maybe it'll, it'll help you. Um, and, and then I finally had the opportunity to interview Claudia for the, the podcast and which I'd like to do again, because back then I was like, over editing podcasts or listening back. I can tell I, I edited way too much. And um, actually she, she, one thing she caught me on that I, there's a funny edit where she made a comment that, um, no, I, I said something about that, that it was approved. I think I said it was approved in the eighties and she said it was approved in the nineties. Now tracks yeah. on the yeah. FDA approval. It, it turned out when I looked back later, we were both right. It was, I think it was approved in the eighties for opioid uh, use disorder and then for alcohol later on. Um, okay. But, but yeah, talking to, we actually, there was a part that I cut from that interview and I, now I wish I had the original, didn't cut it, where we were talking about use, where she agreed that maybe a way to present it to doctors was as harm reduction of saying, you know, people are going to drink anyway. And, you know, doctors yeah. can say, here's an naltrexone. I wish you wouldn't drink, but if you're going to drink anyway, because we all know that you're going to uh, follow this method, take it an hour before a drink and, and always do that. And, um, and then later on, I cut it out because I thought, well, you know, if we're going to talk about the Sinclair method, let's not backtrack and, you know, get mixed up about it. But I wish I had left that in. So, yeah, probably go back and, you know, maybe ask her if she can do another interview. Because oh, uh, yeah. now I kind of like don't really edit them at all because I because I, I lose I'll lose the, the original. I'd rather just have the original conversation. Yeah. Oh, wow. That's so fascinating. Like, I just think that speaks to the power of people like educating their doctors about this treatment, because look at the impact you're having now because of a couple of patients that came to you and talked about this method. I I think that's amazing that you were able to, you know, take the time to look into it and learn about it. Because I know some doctors, you know, that's not always the case and you guys are busy. So that's really encouraging to hear. Yeah. And that's a whole nother subject, you know, doctors who are overworked and, you know, in, in these really kind of abusive healthcare uh, organizations that, you know, that tell doctors, you know, you have to see a patient every 15 minutes, but it really means every five minutes. And uh, a lot of times when you, when you go to see a doctor, um, 
all they're all the doctors thinking about is how do I get out of this room because I have so many people waiting and such a busy schedule and the EMR is so hard to use and I have to document everybody and click 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 through the EMR and um, you know and they they get backed up with uh, medical records at night when they should be home with their families and and so so yeah everything is like very rushed and 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 a lot of things in medicine are actually geared towards that of how can we make things more efficient so doctors don't have to think too much that you know, even like the diagnosis for diabetes, they, they had changed it and made it easier uh, just because doc doctors in some areas were seeing 50 patients a day and there's no time to, to stop and say, let's do a um, this glucose challenge test. It takes hours to do and look back and check back on the patient. Let's just give them one number to, to make the decision on. And um, so, yeah, doctors are under a lot of stress in a lot of places. So, That's you know, crazy. and Mom. yeah, fortunately, there, there's some, you know, like like I try not to let myself get overwhelmed with that. You know, I kind of, work, I work on my own and don't see too many patients. And, and I do put a lot of work into, into researching and reading up on things. And I, you know, blog, blogging and doing podcast episodes. Um, I, I learned a lot from this, you know, I learned a lot from my, my interview with Claudia. I, I just did one with on um, ketamine therapy, which is another subject, which is very interesting and, and learned a ton of stuff that I never knew about. And, and, and that's something, uh, in that subject with ketamine, uh, it's an old medication that that's out of, um, there's no patent on it. It's a generic. And so, you know, there's a company that tried to bring it back as a, a brand or they are doing it. There's a thing called Spravato, which is a ketamine nasal spray, but it's not the full molecule. It's the S isomer of the molecule. So you don't get the full effect of it. But the reason they did that was to, to be able to patent it. Um, and now Trexone you know, is also a generic. There's no motivation. There's no motivation for any drug company to get behind, you know, with, with a multi-million dollar uh, campaign to market to, you know, except for, um, what do you call it, except for Vivitrol. You know, Vivitrol is out there saying, you know, you can't drink because it's in your system all month because it's a, a one-month shot. There, I think there's a diet pill that has naltrexone in it. But that's part of the reason why it's so difficult to get the word out, that there's not like a big company that's motivated to say, here's this old pill that you know, is cheap and generic and there's no money in it, but we want to promote it. Yeah. Um, it's, a, it's a really difficult thing to, it's expensive to, to get out there in front of the public and say, this is what you really should be doing and this is yeah. what works. Yeah. Do you mind if I ask you to, because I know you mentioned earlier that you used to use Vivitrol and you don't anymore. People often ask me about that. Like, should I, like, what's the difference between Vivitrol and Naltrexone and will it work the same? Do you mind if I ask, like, why don't you use it anymore? Or, or what are your thoughts on using it for AUD? Um, it, it just didn't seem very effective in the, the process of getting it, getting it approved by insurance and getting it into the office, giving the injection for something that was was minimally effective if effective at all. Uh, and we were using it more for um, opioid use disorder. And it turns out that buprenorphine, which is Suboxone works a lot better. And, and that's also very similar. It's, it's in that same family of buprenorphine is more of an opioid blocker, but the, the main difference between it and um, now, I mean, there's a couple of differences, but one of the main differences is that in addition to blocking the opioid receptor, it also partially activates it. So it's a partial agonist and antagonist at the same time. But because of that, that partial agonist activity, it's, it's classified as an opioid. And so um, it is a lot harder to prescribe it and get it prescribed even more so than naltrexone. But it, it does seem to work a lot better for opioid addicted people. And um, I, one of my patients that was, do, that was coming in at the time for Vivitrol a few years ago, um, was coming in every month, but it was for heroin addiction. 
And he did really well with the heroin addiction. He never went back. He was very successful. But there was a couple of instances where he, he went out and drank and he, and he got drunk and his mother was very upset about it. Um, and I thought that was interesting. The Vivitrol didn't seem to do anything to, to stop him from going out and getting drunk. And, um, you know, and, and like they say, that, you know, in the research on the, the Sinclair method, without putting the two together, alcohol plus naltrexone works, but naltrexone by itself doesn't work nearly as well. So, yeah. so Vivitrol just doesn't really have the potential because you can't give it uh, in that way as needed. Um, I, I don't know if I totally agree with the day off thing, though. I mean, that's that's and that's a whole other subject you can talk about. There's some people that believe really strongly in that if you don't drink, you shouldn't take naltrexone and you should do positive things to to yeah. reinforce like uh, endorphin activity and and you know associate that. You know, like if you if you're a runner, you know, get the runners high, go for a jog and. Uh, do that on a day that you don't take naltrexone. And I don't know if I totally agree with that, but what, what do you think about that part? Oh, I'm super curious to hear your opinion on that because another doctor friend of mine said something like, I mean, he's really into endorphins and the importance of producing endorphins, but he kind of said something similar. I can't remember exactly, but from my personal experience, like I incorporated that because it was what was in the Cure for Alcoholism book. And I use that as like my Bible when I was on the Sinclair Method. And I really do believe it it helped my uh journey through the Sinclair method because I felt like what was happening was alcohol was my go-to kind of reward and coping tool and so when I was using naltrexone and drinking on the medicine and I wasn't getting that reward my brain was like what the heck like I'm not getting the reward but then on alcohol free days when I didn't have naltrexone and I could get an endorphin reward from eating or exercise or hanging out with friends and laughing or, you know, whatever it is. Um, I really feel like my brain started to then look toward those things for the reward. Like alcohol became a smaller and smaller part because it wasn't getting the reward I was used to. But if I was intentional with going out and doing things that were rewarding and satisfying, then I noticed that I started to prefer those things. And I think it um, also helped just with habits because I was a daily drinker. And so that was a very ingrained habit. And so if I could have an alcohol-free day and go do something completely different. I think it just helped me with habit change in general. Um, but I'm really curious to hear your kind of, you know, medical opinion on why you're not sure about that. Yeah. So, so I, I've worked with a lot of patients on, on buprenorphine, which like I said, is, is very similar. It's a very powerful opioid blocker primarily. And, and so it also blocks the majority of the activity of, of the endorphin system where, where the, the receptors are blocked and not functioning. The, the way they normally would, um, and and patients who have been on that that medication long term, they they do really well as far as being able to enjoy life and enjoy exercise and and the happy things in life, and um and also patients on long term naltrexone and, and and I asked the question of uh, I asked Dr. Adam Bazaga who's like a, a top addiction specialist and he's currently researching naltrexone implants, um and they're but they're new ones that that dissolve so you don't have to remove them and. Uh, I asked him about that. I said, you know, how is it that people can enjoy life, you know, when you're blocking their endorphin system for six months at a time and, and maybe even longer because they might get, you know, implants that when, when the one dissolves, they'll get another one. Yeah. And they might be on this continuously for years. And his answer was that the, the brain and the receptor system and all that, it, it's, it's a very robust system um, and can work around it. You know, it's not just endorphins. There's other ways. Mm -hmm. Um, and he didn't go into details, but I know that there's the, the cannabinoid system and, and there's other systems. And uh, so from my experience of seeing people who have gone years of having 
their, their opioid receptors mostly blocked. Um, and they've been able to enjoy life and be successful and, and, and enjoy having children, enjoy exercise and enjoy all the different things in life that are enjoyable eating. Um, you know, I, I haven't really seen like a, a definite need that a person has to, to have uh, days free of not having their receptors blocked. And I, sometimes I even think that that whole endorphin system is like a vestigial thing that maybe we, we don't even need that. I mean, oh, wow. maybe that's like more of a cave person thing that you needed to know that, that this berry was good and that berry is bad. So the one that caused you pain, uh, you don't want to eat again. And the one that caused, gave you pleasure, you'll keep eating that one. And so it helps, you know, more primitive, primitive kind of animal or human, uh, you know, survive better. And maybe we don't need that anymore. Um, so maybe we could have that system blo mostly blocked or completely blocked long term and still be successful in life and enjoy life. Uh, I'm not totally sure about that, but yeah. I, I, I'm not completely convinced that a person needs to have not trucks on free days, although there might be, there could be another reason for it. Uh, I don't know if you've heard the the reason why the, the AA people are against naltrexone and the Sinclair method. They, they think, they, I read a thing where they think if you, if you block the receptors, the opioid receptors for too long, you'll, I guess you'll have like an upgrade of, of endorphins, you know, that are trying their hardest to get to them. And so when you take away that, that blockade, now you have this flood of endorphins and, you know, cravings and like, you know, and, and so you have, I guess, like a rebound craving, you know, if you stop the medication. Um, I don't know if that's true either. You know, that, that's like a theory of a non-medical organization that hasn't really studied it. But um, Interesting yeah, I mean, theory. I mean, okay, you saying that, I mean, whatever the outcome is, but like just hearing what you say, that is interesting because I think the most common question or concern I hear from people is like, well, it's going to block other pleasures or I'm not going to feel happy or good in life. But, you know, I've rarely seen that. Even someone who's a daily drinker and they're taking naltrexone daily for months and months because they haven't had an alcohol-free day yet, I, I don't hear people say that, oh, I don't feel happiness or joy. And of course, there's people that... Um, have those more rare side effects, but I, I don't really see that being an issue. I've had a couple of clients say they felt a sense of like anhedonia type of experience if they're taking it yeah. daily for a long term. But I've worked with, a, like I've probably talked with hundreds and hundreds of people over the years um, and I very rarely hear that. So that's kind of a, a positive thing, even though you're not totally sure either way, I think it's a good thing, you know? And um, well, one thing, one thing that I'm certain of is that, that a person who takes the medication that doesn't have any issue with it, um, I mean, well, I can't say for, for the public. I mean, I can say, you know, everyone should, of course, talk to their doctor about this. But with my experience with my patients, taking an opioid receptor blocker, whether it's naltrexone or buprenorphine long term daily, uh, has not caused a lot of people to have any issue with, you know, with not enjoying life. Um, but, it, but it probably is an individual thing. And it's great that people have that option that they can have non drinking days where they don't take naltrexone. But I think if a person, feels more comfortable taking it every day, even if they don't drink. Again, it's between them and their doctor. I, I can't tell a person what to do, but I, I, I don't think that there would be any major issue that a person uh, who feels better every day, that, that it should be fine, um, you know, that they're not, they don't have to worry about not enjoying life or, I mean, I guess there's also the other argument that um, in the book that, that uh, he says, well, you want to really reinforce that endorphins are for good things and not for bad things like alcohol. Um, I mean, you know, it, it's, I think it's really individual. It's what works best for a person. If someone really feels strongly, like I, I really want to take this every day just to, um, to make sure I'm safe, you know, if that works for someone, then, yeah. then maybe that's the way they should do it. 
Yeah, I agree. And I think that's the great thing about naltrexone is it can be flexible. Like sometimes I'll have clients say, well, like, you know, I'm, I'm not sure if I'm gonna have an alcohol free day, I want to, but if the urge comes and it's like, from my perspective, and I'm not a doctor, but what I've seen work well for people is that they just take it just in case, like, it's better to take it and not drink than risk drinking without it. Um, yeah. I think it's like a psychological thing too, maybe for me of just knowing, you know, on my alcohol free days without naltrexone, it caused me to be more intentional. Like I wasn't just like working and going through the motion and doing nothing. Like I was really intentional with my alcohol free days. So I could always do something special and rewarding for me, even if that was just getting an ice cream cone or watching some funny videos online. But I was always trying to do something that felt good um, so that I could like stop thinking that alcohol was the only reward in my life. I think that yeah. did help me, whether that was because I didn't have naltrexone in my system or if it was just because I was intentional with doing things, you know, enjoyable on my alcohol free days. Um, I wanted to ask you, because there is this study, I could send it to you, and it's been a while since I read it, but um, it's where David Sinclair is talking about like chronic naltrexone use, and I believe he's re referring to implants, and he says that that may over time cause a tolerance to build, um, and that's why he was recommending more of a targeted dose. And this, again, I could send you this study. I was just curious if you heard anything like that, or if you've read that, or if you have any opinion on that. Uh, yeah, that, that I'm not sure about that. And that could be partly related to that, that a, uh, thing where they, they say, you know, that your, you know, your, your body will try to, uh, overwhelm the blockade by, by mm -hmm. making more endorphins and, and maybe there's a rebound effect. I, I don't know, but as far as like, would it cause, um, the Sinclair method not to work as well? You know, if you take too much of it for too long, um, yeah, that's a good question. I don't, I don't know if, um. I mean, he could be right about that, but uh, I mean, hopefully a person gets to a point where they, they, they get to, um, you know, within a period of time, like six months to a year, less for some, maybe more for others, where they get to that pharmacological, pharmacological extinction where they don't really need to drink regularly anymore. And, and then it really should be at, as needed, you know, that, yeah. that there's no need to take naltrexone every day at that point. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. I'll send you that study so you can see what I'm talking about. And I don't yeah. know if it's different with the implant versus the tablet. I, I don't know. Another thing I, I was thinking that was interesting is that when a person has that rough, rough that rush of endorphins, it, that that doesn't necessarily happen after you have a drink. I guess like when you're anticipating a drink, you're getting really excited, like, "Wow, I'm going to start drinking," and there's that flood of endorphins. Um, what about a person who is going to drink and they don't drink, um, or that you know maybe there's a time of night where they're they're conditioned to drink. You know, like happy hour. Um, maybe at least for a period of time, maybe it would be beneficial that a person takes the naltrexone um, at that time when they would normally have that rush of endorphins. When, you know, just like they, they compare it to Pavlov's dogs of salivating, you know, you're kind of salivating for alcohol at that time of day, whether you're going to actually drink or not. You know, maybe early on in, in, in the, uh, the program, it might be a good idea to take naltrexone more often. That's a really good point because what I ha what happened for me and what I see happen with people as well as and maybe you, you've probably seen this with your patients but like we're used to drinking at me it was like five o'clock every day and so the longer I was on the method I just kept taking the pill around that same time most days but what would happen is once the pill set in my desire to drink would go away probably because it's dampening the endorphins I was producing by just anticipating and thinking about it but I hear that from people too where they're like planning to drink and they take the pill but then after the hour is up they're like oh I don't really feel like drinking anymore so that's an interesting um, approach yeah 
Yeah, it, it's sort of done, it, done its job in that case. I mean, so then it's questionable, like, do we really need the alcohol at, at that point? May, I mean, it's hard to say because in the studies, that was a conclusion that the uh, what really worked best was naltrexone plus alcohol. Um, so it, it, I, do you know anything about the, um, there was that, that rehab um, that had just started and, and it was really promising. And, and I don't know how things are going with that. Do you know anything about that? There's like that inpatient program. The Deerhaven Gardens. Yeah, I, I don't know, like because that seemed like a really unusual thing for like an official rehab to be administering alcohol, and it seems like a, a great idea. Like I, I would imagine, like it has to be like pharmaceutical alcohol in a measured little container, uh, or maybe a syringe or something, and you know, like like put it inject it, put it into their mouth, or like I just thought, like or maybe a medicine bottle. You know, there has to. I can't imagine a rehab giving a person a beer or a glass of wine, but uh, like, do you know anything about that program? Yeah, it actually closed, unfortunately. Um, it was open for a few months um, and it was for women, like they could fit six people. It was a very expensive uh, place. But I know a couple of people who went for the pilot program of it um, for like a month and they had nothing but good things to say about it. But I know that it closed a few months ago for personal and business reasons. That's all that I was told. Um, but I, I do I do remember them saying that they, um, like I don't think they were licensed as a traditional rehab and they might've been licensed as like a bar or something um, oh. and maybe a, another thing as well. But they were serving the alcohol and like had it behind a bar so people couldn't just self-serve. Um, but I don't know how exactly it was like, like if it was in measuring cups or what. Um, and I don't know if people who came there already had a prescription to naltrexone if or if they were administering it to the people there. Oh, um, but I, I know it's a desire for people to have that in-person option. I think it's great. Um, but unfortunately, yeah. the one that opened, it, it closed. And I don't know if it's going to reopen or not. Yeah, yeah, it was a great idea. And, and you know, maybe they could try again. And maybe there's a country where, where, where it would be acceptable to medically treat uh, by administering alcohol with naltrexone and, and make it like a real rehab program. Yeah. But, um, you know, and a lot of rehab programs are going online, you know, because of COVID. You know, now they have uh, intensive outpatient treatment, which is now you can do online. And, you know, it's not that much different from probably from what you're doing. Of, of uh, do, you, do you have group meetings like in your, in your program? Do you offer meetings where people... You have like a lot of people on a Zoom call at once or something? Yeah, we have group meetings. Uh, we have right now, we have three every week. And then we also have like special events. Like we have a monthly drinking, a mindful drinking workshop. And um, we have other um, events like that as well, where we like, we call them TSM workshops, where we talk about different topics related to TSM, kind of doing a deep dive. But yeah, the groups is definitely a, a ongoing part of our program through Zoom and people can sit and listen with their camera off or they can participate. It's up to them. Um, but we find we also do one on one coaching as well. But people really like the groups because they can connect with others. And one person said last yeah. night, it feels like we're becoming a family, which is just really cool to hear. Like we've never met in person, but we meet every week. Um, and so it's really important. Like we were talking about that community and, and support. So, yeah, that's definitely something that's a core of our program. Yeah. Yeah. Online, online meetings can be really good. I mean, I, I, I think that the uh, people in the like traditional groups like AA and NA that they, they weren't really too happy about having to go on zoom for a long time because, because of COVID, because they're used to like that physical connection and they believe in like the spiritual thing of, you know, we're in a room physically together, you know, we can hold hands or hug or whatever. And, and there's something about that in-person thing, 
but there's also something about the the Zoom call. I've read uh, descriptions of it where it's not like a normal conversation. Like when you're talking to someone on a phone, you have like this constant eye contact, and it, it almost seems like a more like a more intimate setting, a more intimate conversation. And and I've I've talked to patients uh, during the COVID time when we were doing telemedicine where I had never met them in person, but I felt like I had. Like I was certain, like like didn't we meet in the office? And like no, we've never met in person. And um, yeah, funny. yeah, it's really. Uh, so I, I think it works really well for for some things, you know, especially for for this. And um, but that's that's great. Like now, what about in like? Do you ever plan for? Have have you thought about planning in person events? Like maybe a couple times a year. Yeah, I honestly really want to do that. It keeps coming up for me, and I I've done like polls in the community to see if people would be interested, and they are. Like I. I call I would like to see it like a Sinclair method retreat, whether it's, you know, just us kind of all getting together, anyone who's on it to go to Mexico or Florida or someplace just to stay, you know, for maybe a week and connect with each other and have that support, maybe have some workshops and things like that. Um, it's definitely something that's on my mind and that I, I would like to do. It's just about, you know, planning it and when to do it and and the logistics of it all. But yeah, what what about you? Like I agree that online stuff is great like I that's like a part of my life is I'm just constantly meeting people online but there is something to speak to be said with the in-person and I think TSM just isn't well known enough yet to have like regional meetings I think Claudia yeah. for a while was doing in-person meetings where she lives in Southern California but I don't know like there's you know only a couple people would come or something so we need to make it more well known I think to have more success with in-person stuff but would you do it would you go to an in-person thing or what are your thoughts on that I, I don't know if I personally would go because I, I don't get out too much anymore, you know, lately. So, uh, you know, if someone said, do you want to fly to uh, California or fly to Arizona for a, uh, an in-person TSM convention or meeting? Um, you know, I, I don't know if I would personally go. I might. But uh, but I think I think there are definitely people involved, you know, would, you know, people that are, are leaders in the community and people that want to get more involved and learn more about it. I, I think there would, would definitely be, um, you know, a lot of people showing up. Yeah. So, um, yeah, yeah, I think that would be, you know, and, and the other group, you know, like the 12 step groups, they have conventions, you know, they have regional conventions and national conventions and people get all worked up and excited to meet together. And uh, but yeah, having something like that, you know, even if it's not quite as big, but, um, you know, even if you had like 40, 50 people, I mean, I've been to med there's like a medical convention I used to like going to. And I think at most they would have maybe 40 people showing up. Um, so it was a more intimate convention. And you know, people getting up to speak didn't have to feel as nervous about it because you didn't have like a huge room of a thousand people watching you and it was more informal. And, but yeah, even a group of 30 or 40 people is a good start. You don't need like yeah. a huge crowd to get started. Yeah. Yeah. I think that would be really, it's something that's been on my mind for years and I'd, I'd like to do eventually, or at least be a part of eventually. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and it wouldn't, you wouldn't even have to, you know, it doesn't have to be a thing where you're, where you're, you know, there doesn't have to be any medication or alcohol at all. You know, people can be told, you know, we don't want to see you drinking or taking pills. But even though that's what the method is, we're here to talk about it. But but whatever you do, you know, go back to your hotel and, and do that. Um, but but yeah, it would be I think it would be like a really positive thing in combination with the community that you, that you already have. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for saying that. I, I like I, it's something I want to do. So maybe it's just brought back to my conscious awareness more so now. Um, yeah. I'm curious to ask you, like, where do you see the Sinclair method in the future, like five to 10 years? I know you mentioned, like, it would be great to have naltrexone over the counter. Do you see this really snowballing and reaching a tipping point eventually? Uh, it, it's going to be a, 
a, a very difficult thing to, you know, for it to become mainstream um, because I, you know, I see it with, with other addiction treatments where, you know, things that should be mainstream. Uh, I mean, just, well, recently, and, and maybe partly because of COVID to some degree, but, um, uh, you know, the treatment for opioid use disorder, you know, with, with medication, medication assisted treatment, it's now kind of like everyone's, you know, people that were never on board are, are getting on board. But a big part of that also is the, the fentanyl crisis, you know, this uh, toxic fentanyl coming in from China and Mexico that that is killing people because no one knows what they're getting when they take any kind of street drug. And um, I, I don't know that, about that happening with alcohol. I mean, alcohol is legal and it's a measured drug that, you know, people know exactly what they're getting. And, um, you know, and, and that's another thing. I mean, there really hasn't been a lot of success around, uh, you know, like, like uh, you know, when they made alcohol illegal, it, it didn't work because no one took it seriously. Everybody, you know, even the, the people in charge, the politicians were all, everybody was drinking still. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, yeah, but I, I, it's hard to say. And, there, and there's a lot of uh, forces working against it, you know, probably, you know, maybe not openly, but maybe the manufacturer of Vivitrol and now Trexlin implants and the multi-billion dollar rehab industry that, yeah. um, you know, it doesn't, you know, nobody really wants to say it's okay to drink with your medication. And um, yeah. it, I, I think there has to be a lot more research, a lot more studies, you know, because when you talk about the 78% effectiveness of naltrexone, um, you know, people right away say, where is that study? And like, you know, when you search around, it might not be so easy to locate it. Yeah. And and when you do find it, it's like, well, why aren't there more studies? You know, why, why aren't there more scientists and scientists here in the U.S. doing studies? I mean, they're studying like, things like mushrooms and LSD and Ibogaine, like everyone's all excited about psychedelics, but why not naltrexone, a simple opioid blocker that, that isn't nearly as dangerous as, as any of those things. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, I, and I don't know how that gets started, but I, I think if there's more research and it doesn't look more of like a pop culture thing, yeah. I mean, it's, it's great that Claudia has got the word out there and, and she's done incredible things of, of making people aware of it, but you know, maybe there needs to be more of like a, a science movement behind it, more studies, uh, more research. And, um, but that, that's, the, it comes back to that problem of like, that there's not really a financial motivation for any big pharma companies or anything to get involved. Um, so I, I think it, it's probably going to be something that just keeps growing very slowly that it, it'll just, you know, like you said, 4 million people have seen Claudia's video and, um, and, and, and she had mentioned also, I, oh, this is another thing I cut from the interview with her, and I, I probably shouldn't have. Uh, oh, who's the guy's name? The um, There's a famous alcoholic actor. Um, Which one? <laughs> yeah, the, uh, oh, what's his name? The guy from uh, Boston. Um, uh, the one who married Jennifer. Uh, oh, what's, I can't oh, think Ben of Affleck. Ben Affleck, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that, yeah Ben Affleck. I get, she mentioned him. She said, oh, maybe we need somebody really really big like Ben Affleck to get behind it. And I actually cut it because I'm like, well, why would you say, why would you think Ben Affleck's any bigger than you? I mean, from my point of view, being a science fiction fan, I'm like, you're, you're bigger than Ben Affleck. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's perspective, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, so, uh, but, um, you know, maybe she's right. Maybe, maybe having more Hollywood people behind it because too many people in Hollywood are behind the tr traditional 12-step thing and, and, and against medication-assisted treatment. And, and, which is a big problem with opioids because, um, you know, you have like Dr. Drew or people like that saying, you know, we don't need medication. We just need the 12 steps and rehab and, and that. And then you have people overdosing and dying all over the place. Yeah. And um, maybe we need more famous people openly in favor of medication assisted treatment and harm reduction. Yeah. 
I was just watching a Friends, the TV show Friends, like a reunion last night, and it caused me to believe or caused me to see that Matthew Perry, who played um, Chandler, I think I don't yeah, know people Chandler. like he has battled hugely with drug addiction, and he's now I think clean, uh, but he almost died in 2019, and now he has a book out about it and is like really talking about it and getting a lot of media and press, and so. Yeah, like something like that to where, you know, someone's out there writing an, another book and they've got millions of followers online. Like that would be awesome. And I just have this sense. I'm like, that's got to happen one day. Like there's got to be a celebrity or someone with, you know, notoriety and influence or whatever who would be willing to speak out eventually. But I do think that could be something that could help it along. But even, you know, there's been New York Times articles about naltrexone and, you know, in the Atlantic and stuff. And those are pretty prominent uh, media outlets and while that's bringing you know some people to it and probably a good number of them and same with claudia's ted talk it's still not you know causing that wave to happen so i am curious what would cause the yeah. method to go viral yeah yeah matthew perry you know he mentioned that he spent nine million dollars on, on addiction treatment wow. you know be interesting to know like where that all went but uh <laughs> yeah yeah but some yeah someone like him um or, or even better uh, um Oh, what's his name? You know, you know the guy that just had the big trial, the pirate pirates. Oh, of the Johnny Depp. Yeah, yeah, Johnny Depp. Maybe he could try it, and you know, because he he seems to to think that it's okay to still drink. Maybe he could take naltrexone and try the Sinclair method and come out and say, "Wow, this really works." Mm -hmm. uh, you know, let's talk about it. I mean, that would get the word out. I, I think really, you know, a lot maybe better than it is now. Yeah. But uh, but I I think I think it's going to keep growing. Though. I don't I don't think um, it's definitely not going away. Um, you know, there's there's you and there, there's me. There's all of us in the community, and you know, that keep talking about it. And um, I, I think telemedicine in during COVID helped a lot with medication-assisted treatment for opioid dependence and addiction. You know, just getting the word out that that you know there's doctors available. You can get your medication. You don't have to sit in the waiting room. You already know that the doctor is prepared to to give you the prescription. You don't have to to worry about that. Uh, and I think there was one at least one or two telemedicine companies for, for the Sinclair method. Um, you know, so that, that might help if, if there's more of that. Although I think it's difficult for a company, like a big company to, to base its entire business on, um, you know, of, of one, one thing like that. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, that, that might help also. Uh, and maybe that has helped, you know, having these, uh, I think there, I can't think of the name of it. I know Work at Health was promoting it and, yeah. There, there's another one, but uh, yeah, so there's like a few things that might help, but I think over time, you know, they can't stop the word from, from spreading about it. And, you know, people do are going to just keep drinking. I mean, um, when someone's not ready to quit drinking, you know, there's that, the, the stages of, uh, of, of being ready for, for, for going into recovery. Yeah. And like the first stage is pre-contemplation yeah. where you're really not ready at all. Like you don't even want to hear anything. You're just going to keep doing it and nobody can really stop you. Mm -hmm. So imagine telling someone, you don't have to stop, you, you know, just, just keep these pills with you try taking one, see how you feel with it. And, and maybe you'll actually enjoy that one night where you can have the one drink and you don't get completely carried away. Yeah. I honestly think that that because the Sinclair method doesn't require abstinence, it brings so many more people into this treatment, you know, to where they wouldn't do anything before they'd stay in that pre-contemplation stage. But now that they know, oh, I, I don't have to quit drinking. I can drink like I want to, but this pill is going to help me cut back. And, you know, I went on this treatment with never intending to quit drinking. But after a year, I was drinking once a month and just I tell people I kept forgetting to drink. Like I just didn't, didn't it didn't occur to me anymore. I didn't have any urge to drink. And 
I did that for four months straight and decided, okay, I guess I'm not drinking anymore. But that's a night and day difference between me white knuckling it, counting my sober days, telling myself I can't drink when I really wanted to versus me just going months and months without drinking because I'm too busy living life and not even thinking about it. Like that is such freedom. And I, I see that happen for people. I think, you know, the majority of people we work with, they have a goal to drink moderately. And and sometimes I, I can tell that they have a sense of shame around that. Like I shouldn't want that. I should want to quit. But the great thing about this treatment is you can become a normal drinker. And there's no reason that, you know, normal drinkers need to quit drinking if they're not binging, if they're not harming themselves and their family, if they have it under control. Like why, why would they need to quit? And so I think the majority of people have that goal of moderation as a, a end goal for this treatment. And some people like myself end up going alcohol free anyway, even when that wasn't the plan, but um, others, you know, I've known people who've been on this treatment for years and they drink a few times a year or on the weekends. And it's really up to the individual to decide what type of relationship they wanna have, which is really awesome about this treatment. Because when you're addicted to alcohol, when I was, it was like the thought of going sober seemed, even though I wanted it, I wanted to get this behind me, it just seemed boring. And like, I don't want to do that because I know my brain was hijacked to crave alcohol, you know, but um, sobriety, when you reach extinction is, you can't even compare. It's a completely different experience. Yeah. um, What do you think of uh, the issue with like the, the fact that it's called the Sinclair method? Like, like I've heard, I think I've heard people advertising the exact same treatment, but not calling that like maybe even some local clinics on the, on the radio of saying, we have this special great treatment where you take a pill and you keep drinking. I'm like, well, that's the Sinclair method. They're just not calling that. And I mean, maybe it does seem like a, uh, a gimmicky product. And, and in fact, when I, I got the audio book for, um, what's that the book again, the, uh, the, the secret the cure to, for alcoholism. Yeah, yeah. The cure for alcoholism, the beginning of it kind of seemed gimmicky. Like there's a, I think he was telling a story how he's running up a mountain, trying to get a signal so he can transmit the book to Dr. Sinclair. And I'm like, well, this, like, it sounds like he's leading into like, uh, he's trying to sell me something. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, and, and, you know, and then when you look up the the research, it, you know, all this stuff that Dr. Sinclair, he, and even his name, I mean, it, this could just be my perception. I'm like, well, Sinclair just sounds like a, um, almost like a made up scientist name, like the mad scientist <laughs> who discovered this thing and he named the thing after himself and, uh, which he probably didn't, but um, no. yeah, I mean, I mean, sometimes and maybe that's like a thing that might work against it, that it kind of on yeah. the surface seems gimmicky, like they're, you know, we're going to get you in the seminar and then upsell you the $50,000 <laughs> thing and another thing. Um, it's so true. I love that you're asking that, Dr. Lee, because I've thought that same thing because I'm so enmeshed in it. It's like, I don't know if it sounds gimmicky because it's just my life, but um, I think so. And there's an interesting clip of Dr. Sinclair where he's explaining this and he was like, he called it pharmacological extinction, but he's like, and other people are calling it the Sinclair method. So he didn't name it after himself, but... Yeah. I've heard from other doctors say like, you know, that doesn't really look good when someone names a treatment after themselves. And I, I agree. I think it can sound gimmicky. But for me, what I've kind of settled on, at least at this point, is like, I like using the Sinclair method because it tells of the specific way to take naltrexone. Because I can't tell you how many people tell me, oh, my doctor prescribed it, but they told me to take it every day in the morning when they're drinking at eight o'clock at night, you know, or um, they told me to take it every day and not drink. And they told me if I drink on this, it'll ruin my liver. And so um, I, I like the Sinclair method because it shows people the way to take it, which is really, in my opinion, crucial to success. If you're taking naltrexone in the morning and drinking eight hours later, it's like, well, it might work or it might, I don't know if, that, I don't know how effective that's going to be, but, um, yeah, that's, that's my kind of thought on it. 
Because there's been yeah. articles about naltrexone and it's like, okay, but if you look up a way to take it, it's like, take it and don't drink. So I don't know, but I, I do think it can yeah. sound kind of gimmicky. <laughs> I love your example of the seminar. Come in for free and we'll upsell you. <laughs> yeah. But the, uh, I mean, the benefit of the name though, is that it's, it gives people a keyword to search for yeah, of like, you know, you hear TSM or you hear the Sinclair method, even if all you remember is Sinclair, you know, you might look up Sinclair and alcohol and, you know, it gives people a, a starting point to, to look into it more. Yeah. Um, and um, that, that that's your your name actually sounds like I don't know. Is there like a famous person with the same name as, as you? It sounds like a recognizable name. Like um, I think there was a pop star named Katie Lang. Maybe that's what comes. Oh, to OK, mind me. that yeah. might be. Yeah, I'm I mean, famous, I, I, actually. I don't know if you knew that. <laughs> I'm just joking. <laughs> yeah, that's what I was thinking. Like, maybe you're like also an actress retired no. or. Um, but yeah, I mean, you're, yeah, that I was thinking like like maybe at some point maybe you might consider rebranding your um organization like you know because it almost sounds like like jenny craig you know like the name that you know the people would associate with uh the sinclair method and and drink alcohol uh, uh coaching oh interesting i never thought of that before that's interesting but, uh, but yeah you got you know years to think about that yeah. um but uh but yeah it's um yeah, the Sinclair method, it's, it's great. So, you, I mean, are there, is there anything else that you'd like to talk about with the, uh, oh, I was wondering, you mentioned um, the um, lifetime and, and I, I love lifetime deals for anything. Um, like, it, is there like a, like a price that someone can pay for your organization to, to be locked in for life? Is that like a program that you have? Yeah. So um, our, all of our memberships are, we have payment plans for our membership, but the, it's all lifetime access. So everyone who joins the program has it for as long as they want. Um, so the program price is $9.97, or they can do 12 payments of $97 or three payments of $347. So we have a couple different payment plan options for people. And we also have a seven-day refund policy where if someone joins and they're like, ah, I don't know if this is for me, we just cancel their membership and refund their money within seven days. Um, but that rarely happens because most people who join um, really find great value in the, the program. And we have um, a lot of reviews on our website where people have just kind of organically expressed how much they like the program. And um, we've been able to, to share those on our website so people can get a sense of like what people like about the program. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's actually a great deal for lifetime access to, to what you're offering to community. I mean, there's in the end, almost any program I can think of, the, the most valuable part of it is access to the community, yeah. to, to being able to have conversations with people and meet people. And um, it, that's actually uh, I mean, there, there's there's people that charge that much for an hour of coaching. Yeah. And there's programs, you know, there's pr programs that cost that much for one year. Um uh, so for lifetime access for that, for just under $1,000, it's actually a great deal. Yeah, you know, we we wanted it to be affordable for people, you know, and we, we actually just launched a scholarship program last month as well to where it uh, reduces the cost of the program for people who really can't afford it. Because even at $97 a month, some people are like, that's too much for me or people like we just had a woman sign up from Australia and the conversion rate over there makes it a lot more expensive in their Australian dollar. So um, we do also have a scholarship application program for people. But at the end of the day, we feel really good about the, the price, especially you know one thing we've heard people say is like oh i spend that on alcohol in a couple of months and so if we're helping people to kind of cut back their alcohol and they're spending less there the program pays for itself pretty quickly so uh yeah, yeah. thank thank you yeah it's also a matter of people prioritizing um yeah. their health prioritizing their you know not, not just health but quality of life you exactly. know that, that 
what what is a what is peace of mind worth to to someone um but uh but yeah it, so that yeah that, that's actually a, a great deal so that sounds really good um do you help people find the medication like if someone joins and, and they love the idea of it but they haven't accessed naltrexone yet like from around the world like do you help people find it yeah, we do. So we have physicians in the U.S. who prescribe it. There's like uh, we have a whole directory we we work with and have partnered with for referrals. Um, so we do if someone joins and we get a lot of people that join who don't have the medication yet. So we refer them to a telemedicine doctor. We do that separately. It's not a part of our program. Um, you know, they just sign up and pay with the physician separately uh, because we want to be able to reach people around the world. And if we bring in the medical component, it just complicates it, as I'm sure you're well aware. Yeah. Um, and we are working also, we have some physicians in Australia and, or in Canada, and we're working to reach out to physicians in Australia. As I mentioned, it's a little bit more difficult there, but we're getting a lot of inquiries from people in um, Canada and Australia and um, trying to figure out how to help them. But yeah, we, we do refer people. Some people join and they already have the prescription and we um, really support them through this protocol, um, the day-to-day -day of it. And then, yeah, others will refer them to a doctor. Yeah, yeah. One, there was a... Uh... A woman who reached out to to us and uh she never became a patient but she said that she can only take nomothene you know nomothene the one that's yeah. available in europe which i guess is I, I thought it was identical i guess it's not completely identical but it works very similarly to, to naltrexone and um she said that nomothene worked better for her for some reason than naltrexone and she but she said that there's pharmacies in europe that will accept a u.s doctor's prescription and then ship it to the patient huh. um i never really looked into it she just was she said if she becomes a patient she'll give us her pharmacy and you know can we please fax it or email it to them and uh it, it never happened but it was an interesting idea that that maybe uh nalmaphene it, it would work for some people just as well and maybe it's more accessible that way fascinating and have you heard that nalmaphene can have more side effects for some people i've heard that that's anecdotal i i haven't really looked into it just, just okay. because it's completely out, outside of like what I would ever prescribe to anyone I haven't, but yeah. but it's possible. But mm -hmm. I, I don't know much about it yeah. other than the fact that it, it, it exists and it's out there. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. So, uh, but yeah, that's, um, uh, now if you heard, uh, now when people start taking it with, you know, there, there's side effects and, and I'm sure you've helped people through this where they can take less medication, you know, they can start with, instead of starting with 50 milligrams, um, and that's the funny thing. There's a low, there's low dose naltrexone treatment, which is a whole different thing yeah. that people for different pain syndromes might, and, and they have trouble finding doctors also that are willing to, to work with that. But low dose naltrexone is in the range of one to six milligrams compared to 50 milligrams for, um, for what we would take for uh, the Sinclair method. So, uh, but there's even, there's people with low dose naltrexone that are worried about side effects and they, you know, they're worried about like what is this going to do to me if I take three milligrams a day? Yeah. Um, but you know, there's so when you start the Sinclair method, a person might start with half a tablet, 25 milligrams, to to get used to it and you know get used to the side effects. But uh, I, I had a another theory about that, and, I, and this might be really crazy. I, I might be stupid, so maybe I shouldn't even mention it. But uh, I saw that there was like a discussion going on about uh, kratom, you know, which is a, an opioid-like plant substance, and um, uh, and, and this pro kratom person said, well, you know, if you're going to call kratom or kratom, however you say it, if you're going to call it an opioid, you might as well call cheese an opioid because cheese works on opioid receptors also. And, <laughs> and, and when I saw that, I'm like, well, you know, what if like some of the people getting sick are like having like 
precipitated withdrawal because they've been eating pizza and then they take not you know maybe we need to to counsel people on diet and say don't you know don't take anything that that might stimulate uh you know you know something that's opioid like you know i mean i don't know if if how much of an opioid cheese really is but uh you know maybe there's an interaction when people take naltrexone and get sick from it maybe it's because they ate too much cheese that is so fascinating. I've never considered that before. And as you were mentioning earlier, like we need more studies in naltrexone. That is an area where I would be super curious to see more research done, you know, especially for the people who tell me, oh, I couldn't even take a quarter tablet. It made me so, so sick. Like, I, I wish I could have tolerated the medicine. It's like, why is that happening? Why do some people just not respond to it? And if, if it does have to do with what they're eating, or I've heard people tell me um, when they started the treatment that they were really hungover and they had bad side effects to the medication when that was the case. So if someone's really hungover starting the medication. Um, but wow, that's really interesting. Do you think that something, if someone put money behind that, could it be researched? Like the best way to take naltrexone to avoid side effects or, or are some people just like forever oh, okay. gonna have side effects? There, there might also, there's actually a thing um, with buprenorphine where, where uh, people can't, don't tolerate it or they, they get precipitated withdrawal. And um, there, there's a, a method which the, it's more discussed in Canadian journals, but um, where, where the patient is introduced to it very gradually, like you start it, you know, instead of starting at like, you know, two milligrams, four or eight milligrams, you start at like half a milligram or less. Mm -hmm. And there's like a schedule where you gradually little by little each day increase it. Um, that, that could be a protocol, you know, you could have like, a, you know, a compound pharmacy put together like a thing where a person starts at maybe as low as one milligram. Yeah. And, and over a period of a month, they gradually work their way up to somewhere between 25 and 50 milligrams and, and, and just get accustomed to it over time. And during that time period, you know, recommend, you know, try to drink less, uh, or, you know, drink a minimal amount because you're not, you know, I, I think that's part of the thing is we want someone to get the full effect right away. Yeah. So we're like, we'll try the 50 milligrams, see if that works. And yeah. a lot of people are fine with it, but maybe the right way to do it for those people that, who get sick and can't tolerate it would be to, to have some kind of a very gradual introduction to it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I that makes sense to me because, you know, um, in my opinion, like there's no rush to increase the 50 milligram if someone's sick on it, you know, it's like, okay, if well, you can start at that lower dose and work your way up. And I've, I've heard of people who got the low dose naltrexone and, and started there and even saw effects with that. So I'd yeah. be curious to hear it. It's such a shame when I read those comments from people about, oh, I just couldn't tolerate it. And, and sometimes I do wonder, you know, did they start at the full 50 milligrams and have bad side effects and then they never took it again, you know, which can happen for people if they're not aware of, you know, cutting the dose down and starting more gradually. Yeah. Ha having a medication side effect is a very discouraging, like yeah. in, in opioid addiction treatment, we really don't want people to have precipitated withdrawal, which is what happens when they take, uh, like for example, if they take Suboxone too soon after the opioid they were using, they need to have like a washout period to get all that opioid out of their system. Same thing with naltrexone, although with naltrexone, it's actually a longer period of time uh, that you can't have any opioid-like substance in your system. Yeah. Um, because, you know, like if, if someone has precipitated withdrawal with Suboxone, they probably will go out and not come back again. They'll say, well, that didn't work for me. Yeah. Not only did it not work, it made me really sick. So why would I want to feel bad when I'm already feeling good taking this stuff on the, the streets? You know, some with the Sinclair method, it might be the same thing. Yeah. Why would I want to take this pill that, that made me sick and, and I enjoy drinking? So forget that. And, you know, maybe I'll try something else later on. Um, 
so it is good to try to avoid that happening altogether if possible. Yeah. yeah. Do you um, see anything that helps people with side effects in particular? Like, do you recommend people have the medicine with a meal or anything like that? Uh, not specifically. Uh, you know, I can't remember off the top of my head. I, I had a list of things that there was a list of, there was something, something you could take with it. Uh, you know, if I had a patient here in front of me, I'd pull this list up and give it to them. But yeah, I think yeah, you might be aware of it. I think there's some things that, you know, that you can do to, to reduce the possibility of side effects, like things you can take with it or okay. take it with or without food. Like what, what would you recommend? Um, I mean, I, it's interesting because I've always heard and been of the belief from my personal experience and just working with clients that taking it with a full meal is a good idea because that also helps to yeah. your body to absorb the alcohol more slowly if you've got food in your stomach. But then I recently heard someone say that their doctor advised them to take it on an empty stomach. So because the opioid are receptors in the gut, it helps absorb the medication better. And so I was curious to hear if you had an opinion either way. Um, but I also know like the over or the, the prescription on Dancitron or Zofran, the anti-nausea medication, some people are prescribed that if they have nausea or they just taken over the counter anti-nausea. Um, I've known people who, who do that if they have the nausea as like a, a ongoing side effect. Um, yeah. Yeah. And on Dancitron, you, you might be aware that's also being studied for, for treating addiction. Um, yeah. That's fascinating. Yeah. It's do you use used it? No, not yet, but it's it's used in a much lower dose apparently, and it um, it only works for people with like a certain like serotonin transport uh, gene. Like it, it's not for everybody, so it's going it's going to be released as like an official drug for treating uh, I think alcoholism, and and they might release it later. It might get approved for other things, but it, it's like going to be it's going to be one of the first drugs that, that's paired with a genetic test where you would get the, the test first. And if you have the right genes then you can take it for that. Um, but we actually did a podcast episode on that, but oh, you know, if I'll it's available, it yeah, but if a person is going to take it for nausea, they might get that additional benefit also. Interesting, man. I'm just thinking about the person who's going in for that test. And like, if it says that they won't respond to it, like they need to get referred to naltrexone, you know, cause that would be so disappointing to have this hope. And if, if they're not a candidate for it, um, interesting. Yeah, yeah, there, yeah, there was a, I did a uh, podcast interview with a, um, I have to actually see if I put this one on the, on the Sinclair method podcast, cause it should be there, but it was with a, um, a doctor from the Canadian alcohol use yeah. disorder, uh, society. And he talked about like all these different medications. And once, once we finished, I was upset cause we forgot one. I think, um, I think there's a muscle relaxer, uh, Gabapentin. Is, is, I think it's baclofen. Oh, baclofen. Yeah. Yeah, somehow we, 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 I forgot to bring that one up, but no, gabapentin we talked about, we talked about on Dancitron, uh, we talked about, I think there was a, another anti-seizure medication. There, there was like maybe five medications we talked about yeah. of like alternatives. Like if one doesn't work, you have all these options. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, you know, people should be aware, like if naltrexone alone doesn't work, there's other things that their doctor can, can try to help them out. How would you like say someone's going to their general practitioner to ask for a prescription for medication for alcohol addiction? Um, do you think that's a good idea? Should they work with someone like you who's a specialist? Like if they do, what should they bring to their doctor? What are your thoughts on that? Because I know sometimes people go to their doctor and they will refuse to prescribe naltrexone to them, for example. So I'm curious what you yeah. think. That actually something like that, that Canadian Alcohol Use Disorder Society, that might be a good place to to, to have a doctor look because it it's, you know, it's made by doctors. It's, it's mm -hmm. written in, you know, language that, that doctors would, would be comfortable with, you know, rather than saying, you know, go watch this YouTube video of a Ted talk with, yeah. 
probably a Christian. I mean, and that's not a bad thing either. An open-minded doctor can watch that and say, let me, let me look into it more and, and find out about it, you know, read about the research, but it might help with some doctors to start with something that, you know, that looks more medical to them. Yeah. Okay. That's interesting. But, uh, but I think a person should try starting with their primary care doctor. You know, if, if they have a doctor, a family doctor that they're comfortable with already, yeah. and, um, you know, rather than going to look for a secondary doctor, you know, try to educate their, their doctor and bring it up and, and, um, and then maybe they're helping other people by getting their doctor on board with it and, and maybe introduce it as, introduce it as a harm reduction method. You know, this is something that people are going to keep drinking anyway. Um, rehab has a very low success rate. AA Alcoholics Anonymous has a low success rate. So when the person does relapse, you know, maybe they should have something available to keep them from getting completely out of hand. Yeah. And like what happened with you? I mean, those couple patients turned you onto the Sinclair method and it, it like the power of that grassroots movement to, you know, educate doctors about this and see how many patients they can help, you know, after um, they've helped you. So maybe that's how we'll raise awareness about it. Just one person, one doctor at a time. Another thing is um, there's an organization that, that I've been working with. Like I told you that there's uh, doctors that are under a lot of stress. And that, I mean, there's even an issue with uh, healthcare workers and suicide and depression and wow. anxieties, you know, you know, maybe even more so with COVID there's a lot of doctors that are trying to find like a way out of like their career. You know, they, they want to find, you know, desk jobs or non-clinical careers and they don't realize that they could, they could still continue practicing medicine and not have to work for an abusive healthcare organization. Yeah. They don't have to work for a hospital or, or a big company that's just trying to find ways to make them work harder and, and save more money. And um, that a doctor can open a practice. You know, Claudia even talked about when she finally found the one doctor, the first doctor willing to take a chance and give her a prescription for naltrexone, that he, I, I don't know if he's still her doctor, but I guess, you know, that he was for a long time, maybe he still is, but that he, he later on had a very successful naltrexone uh, Sinclair method practice um, after learning about it through her. Uh, and, and they've probably, the, the C3 foundations probably helped other doctors with that doctors that were interested and then found out they can get listed on that website and yeah. they can um, see more patients. But doctors who are, there's a program that helps doctors that, that helps them to, to kind of, they have retreats where they, they bring the doctors out to like this, like the West coast, like uh, I think Oregon, like where they have these hot springs and they sit around in hot springs and talk about how miserable their jobs are. And they, they just want to get out of them. And, and then they go to these seminars, these uh, lectures where they learn about that it's possible to, to open an ideal clinic, to open their own clinic, that you don't have to have a high overhead. All you really need is like a, you know, like a low rent place to practice and a, a stethoscope and, and a scale and whatever you, you really need. You know, you can plan out like, what's the minimum I need? And mm -hmm. I don't need to sign up with every insurance company in the world. And then the question is, once they've set up their little clinic, how do they find patients? Well, yeah. they, they maybe they could find patients through you, through the C3 Foundation. Maybe they, now that they're, they have their own practice and they're not seeing 50 patients a day, they have time to learn about the Sinclair Method. Yeah. And, and things like it. And, and what is there out there that people are looking for that the regular medical community doesn't want to um, uh, address properly? So there, yeah. there is a, a movement to help doctors kind of drop out and, and get situated in their own clinic. And, and that's like a perfect place to introduce this to, to those kind of doctors. You know, maybe not, not so much the doc, you know, like for example, there's, um, there's a kind of medicine where it's, it's like a subscription thing, like where mm -hmm. you pay a doctor like a low fee per month, like, you know, maybe like, 40 50 dollars per month and and that doctor takes care of everything and you can call them anytime you can text them um 
I forgot what they call that. There's like a name for that thing also. Like uh, it's not concierge medicine, but it's like, and they also get you low price access to testing and things like that. Huh. Um, but it's um, that a lot of doctors that, that drop out, they go into that. And, you know, and, and, and so I, th- I think some of these doctors that have their own small clinics are probably looking for more things they can do, yeah. you know, and they might not see a lot of patients per month. Like that, I mean, that was one advantage I had. I don't, I don't really see a lot of patients every month. I, you know, I, where some doctors might see 30 to 50 patients a day, I might see three or four a day. Yeah. And, and I typically spend like a whole hour at least with a patient when I talk to them. Yeah. Um, so there's a lot of time to, to think and research. And, you know, every, every new topic is like a new opportunity to write a blog post or do a video. Yeah. So, so you, it gives you more of a reason to research. Yeah. I, I love that idea because we know that millions of people are struggling with alcohol. And if any, like, I'm sure there's tons of people that were like me where I thought my only option was to quit. And so I kept trying and failing and it just sent me deeper and deeper into the problem. And if, if we can reach people who are like, you know, not even severe, but, you know, anywhere on the spectrum of alcohol use disorder, just, hey, you don't have to quit. You can cut back. I'm just thinking of those moms that maybe drink a bottle of wine every night. They're functioning, they're working, they're successful, but this is definitely a thorn in their side. And like you said, too, with um the way that the, you know, abusive healthcare system, I, I sense that. Like, I don't go to the doctor that often, but when I do, I'm just like rushed in and out of there. They're usually late. It's just this awful experience. So like, I'm hungry and I'm sure other people are for practices like yours where you might, it might be more expensive. Maybe I know I have to pay out of pocket, you know, for that type of service because they typically don't take insurance because it's such a headache and so much paperwork, but you get that one-on-one, that in-depth support, as opposed to just like you gave that example of the diabetes where they're just like making the test easier, but is it, you know, as effective or as useful? I, I don't know, but um, I, I hope that we see more of that in the healthcare system because I know people, especially like going to their doctor for naltrexone, if their doctor's just like, nope, like, see you later, you know, there's not really a lot of um, extra support or care or compassion there. And it, it really doesn't help someone when they're in that vulnerable state of asking for a prescription. That, that was my experience. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think things are going to get better in that area. And it's just a matter of knowing where to look like, yeah. you know, um, but yeah, ideally, you know, if someone's going to their doctor anyway, that takes their insurance and it's their family doctor. It's yeah. worth bringing it up and, and trying to educate them. But, but yeah, if it's a complete roadblock, like, no, forget that. I have no interest. You know, then maybe, you know, start looking elsewhere for a, um, you know, more open-minded free thinking doctor or, or maybe like a telemedicine company. Yeah. Um, you know, like just, I, I, yeah. And I know with the Sinclair method, it's unique because um, on one hand, the person needs access to the medication and then, they don't necessarily need the doctor going forward. Once they have the medication, they can work with a, a Sinclair Method coach, uh, someone who's C3 uh, Foundation certified and um, and go from there. Yeah. So any, anyway, I, I don't want to keep you too much longer, uh, but um, yeah, this has been really incredible. So how, how can people find the Thrive community and the Thrive organization? Yeah, I, Dr. Lees, I've lo- I feel like we could sit here for three more hours. Like, I, it's just such yeah. a good conversation. Um, yeah, so if they go to our website, thrivealcoholrecovery.com, thrivealcoholrecovery.com, um, they can find all of our resources and information on there. We have several uh, free resources about the Sinclair Method. Um, our social media channels are linked uh, as well, where we're posting pretty much daily, just different content and resources and videos and things like that. So um, that's the place to go. Okay, perfect. Yeah, yeah. I- would definitely love to have you back on the podcast and, and, you know, just keep this uh, Sinclair method podcast going and, you know, getting some, some new great content out there. And uh, 
and you know so if you or if any of your your coaches or people in the community are interested you know we're definitely uh looking for more people to, to feature on the, on this podcast awesome yeah i will i will let people know i'm sure there are other people for sure so okay great katie lane thank you for being on the, the podcast today thank you so much for having me